Open your Bible to that text, to John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. We'll look through uh, till verse 19. Open your Bible, navigate on your device. The topic, there is a lot of glory going on as Jesus speaks about his giving glory to the Father, then says to him, and the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. The title of the message, The Never-Ending Glory. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we approach your word, we do it with humility. We uh, ask, Lord, for help in understanding it. We understand that your Holy Spirit is here, Lord, to teach us, that he is a teacher who comes alongside. And so I pray, Lord, that your word would find uh, open hearts, willing hearts, Lord, to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. And those who agreed said, Amen. The Battle of Stalingrad, Battle of Britain, Pearl Harbor, Guadalcanal, Midway, D-Day. Historians say any one of them could legitimately be considered the decisive turning point of World War II. We're defining turning point as the point at which a very significant change occurs, a decisive moment. There's a decisive moment in the history of the world a single turning point that changed everything for everyone forever. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The decisive hour that all human history turns upon was the six hours Jesus spent on the cross. All history before Jesus died on the cross looked forward to it. All history after Jesus died on the cross looks back to it. Jesus explained that it marked the fulfillment and replacement of God's old covenant with mankind when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus' last words from the cross were the triumphant shout, it is finished. No longer would mankind perform temporary rites and rituals, follow religious rules and regulations. God would give believers new hearts, hearts of flesh, not of stone. It is finished, but it is not over. The Apostle Paul wrote, He defeated the rulers and powers of the spiritual world. With the cross, he won the victory over them and led them away as defeated and powerless prisoners for the whole world to see. But the same Apostle Paul told us to put on the full armor of God as soldiers in an ongoing spiritual warfare. After the decisive turning point World War II battles, the war continued. Even though Jesus was victorious over Satan and sin and death, our cosmic battles in World War Spiritual continue. Jesus talked to his father about coming to the hour and about what would happen after. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus makes the father visible to you. And number two, you make Jesus visible to all. Let's take a look in verses 1 through 5 at Jesus making the Father visible. You're moved when at the end of Braveheart, William Wallace screams freedom at the top of his lungs. He was defeated and being disemboweled, but he went out in what we would call a blaze of glory. That isn't glory, however, or glorious. That's not how the word should be used. Glory is a word that should really only be used of God. You'll notice as we read this morning that some form of the word glory is used five times in these 19 verses, again at least once or twice in the remaining verses. 
What is glory? How does one go about giving God glory? Glory happens when the invisible qualities, character, or attributes of God are displayed in a visible way. In short, glory is the invisible God made visible. It is when God is represented in such a way that folks can see him. And so verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Christians tend to bow their heads to the floor praying with eyes closed. I would say that's the majority opinion. Knowing I was going to talk about this, I've been trying all week to pray looking at the heavens with my eyes open. And it just, I have a natural reflex. You know, when people say, let's pray, my, it's like, you know, it's like you're programmed. Now, God hears you in any posture. That's not what I'm getting at. But it's just interesting to me that Jesus' example uh, has, think of its symbolism. The idea of looking directly at God, being a friend with God, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Obviously, we reverence God. Uh, but we have a whole new relationship with God through Jesus Christ than we did through ritual religion. And so I'm not saying everybody has to lift their head, but you should try it. Try it for a couple of days. It's, it's, it's hard. You're, you're just, you might have to put something here, you know, like a neck brace. We could sell the prayer brace. Oh, man, paywall on the website. Get your prayer brace. Jesus prayed with his eyes open looking to heaven. Here's what can help you for $29.95. No? No, okay, I'm sorry. There is nothing in Jesus' prayer telling you what to do. No instruction for you, no steps to follow. It isn't a model for your praying. It is all Jesus praying for you. To be accurate, he prayed first for the 11. Then in verse 20, he begins to pray for us, our, their spiritual descendants. Jesus often told his disciples, my hour has not yet come. He meant the crucifixion. It had been long anticipated and planned. God promised our parents, Adam and Eve, that he would come as the seed of the woman to win the decisive victory over the devil. The Old Testament progressively reveals the details of his coming until he is born to the Virgin Mary. There's even a passage that calculates the hour. The prophet Daniel was given the prophecy we call the 70 weeks. It accurately dated the first coming of Jesus Christ using a known date in human history. You know who looked forward to that hour? Lambs and bulls and goats and birds who were sacrificed by the tens of thousands from the time of Adam and Eve until Jesus came. They were, you might say, placeholders, temporary substitutes for the final Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Essentially, in the Garden of Eden, God, the Lord was promising that he would come to die as the once-for-all sacrifice, and, and God was able to substitute animal sacrifice, looking forward to the truth of that statement. And so, man, if animals could talk, right? They can in animation, so why not? But anyway, Father and Son would glorify each other at, on, and after the cross. It was like a glory back at you between them, a mutual glorying. For example, there was a centurion present at the cross. After taking in all the things that happened, he said, truly this was the Son of God. Deity somehow was made visible through Jesus' humanity. This was a, centurion saw a lot of killing. They saw a lot of crucifixion. 
And this seasoned centurion said, no one has ever been crucified in this manner. There's something godly about it. Now, he may not have become a believer. Some people like to point out that, that, you know, that all he said was truly this was the Son of God, and so he had it wrong, but uh, you know, that's just an over-criticism. But the point is, there was a glory going on at the cross. The invisible was being made visible. Thomas Boston writes, in our redemption by Christ at the cross, we have the fullest, clearest, and most delightful manifestation of the glory of God that ever was or ever shall be in this life. All the declarations and manifestations that we have of glory in the works of creation and in common providence are dim and obscure in comparison to what is here. Indeed, the glory of his wisdom and power and goodness is clearly manifested in the work of creation, but the glory of his mercy and love had lain under an eternal eclipse without a redeemer. And so Boston recognizes that everything was moving forward to this event on the cross that would change everything for everyone forever. So verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you gave him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus has the authority to save. No one else does. He delegates that authority to believers. Eternal life is given as a free gift to any and all who know Jesus and through him God the Father. Jesus Christ proved that he has life to give by being raised from the dead. And he lives forevermore. Uh, as far as I know, I've, I've been doing some checking on the internet, but none of these other religious characters were, rose from the dead. No one else who's established a religion has risen from the dead and said, I can give you life. Jesus said, I can. I am life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I rose from the dead, and life is now mine to give. And so maybe this morning you're uh, dabbling in some other religion or philosophy. Um, does the leader or the author of that, have they died and risen from the dead? Then you're in an inferior position, believe me. Would you rather follow somebody into heaven who's risen from the dead and knows his way there or somebody who's guessing and hoping that what they've come up with might work in the end? As many as you have given him. Nothing in that phrase indicates that the Father limited the atonement on the cross to give only a chosen few. Jesus was not at that moment even praying for the world. He was only praying for his 11 disciples. If I pray for a person to get healed, it doesn't mean that I'm excluding the rest of the world and saying they can't be healed. And so there, don't read anything into this. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The plan of salvation predates the creation. Before the world was, Jesus knew he would die on the cross to save sinners. He rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he's seated there in splendor. He remains God and man forever. We like to call him the God-man in his glorious resurrection body. I can imagine Jesus saying to the Father, I showed them your grace and mercy when they brought that adulterous woman. The law demanded she be stoned, true, but I was able to show them your grace and mercy, even in a terrible situation like that, so that they would know your heart. 
I can imagine the father saying to Jesus, yeah, well, how about that guy we let down through the roof? We were always going to heal him, but I first told you to forgive his sins. It showed them where our true priorities lie in the forgiving of sins so that men might live forever with God. And so the, the father and the son, they're almost in a competition to outglorify each other, you know, to bring the other the most glory, but to reveal and to make visible. You know, a lot of times people, even Christians, they think that the God of the Old Testament is a mean old man. He's got arthritis or something, you know, and it makes him kind of cranky. And then Jesus steps in and says, oh, Dad, I'll take care of this because you're just a little bit, take your medication and everything will be fine, you know. Jesus said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the same. We're exactly the same. And so he makes visible what is invisible. Could have shortened the Bible study by quoting Hebrews 1.3, but then I only work once a week and I like to earn my keep. <laughs> there it says that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory, the exact likeness of his being. Glory making the invisible God visible. You make Jesus visible to all. June 6, 1944, an Allied force of more than 150,000 troops, 5,000 ships, 800 aircraft, assaulted 50 miles of northern France's Normandy coastline. More than 4,000 Allied troops died, 6,000 more were wounded, but the Allies succeeded in breaching Hitler's coastal defense of France. D-Day effectively ended the war in Europe. The war, nevertheless, went on another 11 months before General Eisenhower accepted Germany's unconditional surrender on May 8, 1945. Jesus finished the work his father gave him to do, but he is not done. Neither are disciples done. Until he returns for his church, we make him visible. Jesus is gone. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's omnipresent by the Holy Spirit. Because he's in a body of flesh, a glorified body, but a body nonetheless. And so we now, as Christians, Christ-like individuals, we make him visible to the world. I have manifested your name, verse 6, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. J.C. Ryle writes, No one can read the four Gospels with attention and fail to see that never had a great master such weak servants as Jesus had in the 11 apostles. Yet these very weak servants were the men of whom he graciously speaks here in high and honorable terms. Having received his disciples from the Father, Jesus prayed all night and the Father picked these guys and told them to pick them, Jesus submitted to the selection. There was never any talk of replacing them, no ultimatums to straighten up or leave, no threatening, not a word against his people, W.S. Rainsford writes, no allusion to what they had done or were about to do, forsake him. Now, this is not how we, you know, march at all, is it? You've been in situations with coworkers or on a team or whatever where, you know, you, you just, somebody's just blowing it and you let them know. You take them out back and you say, hey, Peter, would you keep your mouth shut for once? All you're doing is getting in the way of the teaching I want to do. I'm going to have a hard time making you Pope if this continues. <laughs> right? Or some of the other guys say, are you guys arguing about who is the greatest again? I can't take it. Guess what? You're on, 
latrine duty or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that's how we roll, right? I, I mean, you, you, you take a person aside and, and you know, you, you deal with it, sometimes harshly. God forbid church leaders would treat believers that way. And for that matter, no Christian should treat anyone that way. But Jesus, he said, okay, God, these are the guys. There's never been a weirder group of people ever. So over here, he's got a tax collector, and over here, he's got a zealot. You don't think those guys had a problem with each other? They did. Matthew probably slept with one eye open, wondering if, you know, he was going to get stabbed. And then there's the brothers, two sets of brothers. Brothers fight with each other a lot, but if you come up against them, they, they solidify. I'm telling you, there were a lot of weird things going on among the apostles. And yet Jesus says, look at these guys, they're so great. Thank you, Father, for these guys. It's crazy. Think about it. You having trouble at work? You're not having this kind of trouble. <laughs> Believe me. Having received his disciples from the Father, Jesus submitted to it. How very sad that we would act that way. Jesus wasn't doting on the disciples. He said, they have kept your word. How generous is our Lord. He credits them for their perseverance, even as they were scattering. The pulpit commentary says, to Christ's eyes, they have already come out of their fiery trial, faithful and true. It's hard for me to understand, in one sense, how Jesus can see me completed. But he does. If you're a Christian, the Lord sees you completed. He sees you glorified. And uh, at the same time, he's bringing you to that point. It's a mind blower. But uh, it's a wonderful thing, too. As the Lord constantly would look at you and say, oh, my faithful servant. <laughs> I'm the only one here, Lord. I think, you know, put your glasses on. But he loves us that much. Verse 7, now they have known all the things, uh, that all the things that you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. For all of their confusion and misunderstanding of Jesus, they realized his words and his works proved he was sent from God as their Messiah. I pray for them, verse 9, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. There are those who seem obsessed trying to prove Jesus did not die for the sins of every person, the whole world, but only for a limited group. This is a proof text for them. See, see, they say Jesus did not pray for the world, only those God gave him. Once again, we would point out that this is Jesus' prayer for those specific 11 guys. It doesn't cancel out the words, God so loved the world, or Jesus saying that through the cross he would draw all men to himself as the savior of all men, especially those who believed. We reject any attempt to limit the atonement of God to a special group of people, which makes necessary the damnation of most of human population, right? So if God chose, let's take this room. God would certainly choose me and my wife, but he wouldn't, maybe he wouldn't choose any, any of you. And there's nothing you can do to get saved because before the foundations of the world, he only chose us. And when I say, well, Lord, what about all these people who are condemned to hell without being able to make a decision? The scholar says, oh, I, have, I can answer that. That brings glory to God. He's so glorious to save even two. 
because no one deserves to be served. Is that glory, is that making the invisible God visible? Is it really telling people that God is a monster and kills most people without giving them an opportunity to be saved? I don't think that's glory. I just don't. We never will. So uh, when anybody comes to you with this idea that the atonement was limited, it is not. It was not. And you know what? You don't have to believe that. You can believe that. You, you'll be wrong, but you can believe that. It's a belief people take. And they, you know, there are scriptures that seem to say that, but mostly they're like this, where it says, well, see, God only gave him. God only gives certain people, and that's not true. And so anyway, why am I telling you all this? Every few years, this sweeps through the church. And I start hearing people saying, hey, this friend of mine gave me this book to read, or I was invited to this, or I was, and it's the same thing all over again. Some Christian has converted to this hyper-Calvinism, and instead of going after non-believers, they go after believers trying to convert them to their theology. And it's just tedious, and it always leads to poor results in our walk with the Lord. Jesus considered himself glorified in them, certainly not that night when they would be scattering. In fact, Jesus was probably not talking about specific instances at all, but was revealing that the work he had begun in them would come to completion. He who began a good work will complete it. There would be a time and an eternity in which you look upon a saint and see Jesus glorified in what he accomplished with so little to work with. So little to work with, really. When you think about what God is going to make a human being into, uh, all of us give him very little to work with. In fact, he really kind of starts over. In Iron Man, Obadiah Stane grew frustrated when Stark industry scientists and engineers could not duplicate the arc reactor he growled, Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a box of scraps. It must frustrate the devil to see what Jesus does and will do with us. He does his best to break us and to keep us lost and to depress us and to weary us and, 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 and those things. And then Jesus comes along and he makes us beautiful in his time. It must just drive him crazy. He doesn't want to work with people like us. He wants to destroy us. He's a murderer from the beginning. And then Jesus says, hey, I died for Gene. I died for you, uh, people. And so, you know, I see what I'm going to do with you. Now I'm no longer in the world, verse 11, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus, still speaking of the eleven. They were about to be scattered, ashamed of the Lord, fearful. If that tells us anything, it is that they could not keep themselves. The Father kept them for Jesus' sake. God keeps you. You cannot fail so much that he will forsake you if you are a Christian. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. People compare a difficult task with herding cats. Have you ever heard of that? People use, oh, this is like herding cats. And who remembers there were a series of commercials way back when about herding cats? Did you ever, anybody remember that? Yeah, okay, all us old people. But they're hilarious. You can find them on YouTube. They have these gruff cowboys on this cattle drive, but they're driving a herd of cats. 
And uh, it's it just has nothing to do with what they're selling, which I, those are my favorite commercials. It's some kind of electronics firm, but it is just hilarious the way they do it. And so herding cats. It was no small task to keep the disciples discipling for three and one half years. Worse than herding cats. Now we took a look at Judas in a previous study. His betrayal was supported by scripture, but not in the sense that he and he alone was predetermined to betray the Lord. Uh, you can't look at Judas and think, well, there was nothing he could do. He was born to, do, you know, to and forced to betray the Lord. To say that is to go beyond what Scripture says. He was never a believer, but he could have gotten saved. In that case, the Scripture would have been filled another way. Now, that's a head-scratcher. You think, well, wait a minute. How, what do you mean the Scripture can be fulfilled another way? I would cite as uh, argument where Jesus talked about John the Baptist. He said to his disciples, John the Baptist would have been Elijah if Israel had believed but now Elijah will still come. And you, you think, what? How does that work out? We don't know. And so Judas was the betrayer, but it didn't have to be him. And if it wasn't him, someone else would have fulfilled the scripture. But now I come to you, verse 13, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I speak in the world reminds us that the Lord was praying in the presence of the 11. In their time of forsaking Jesus, they could remember this line that this, they would have the help of God the Father to bring them back to a place of joy. In their darkest, this had to be up to that point, the darkest moment of their lives. They'd been with Jesus three and a half years and now they would abandon him and forsake him and hide. And yet the Lord was saying, hey, remember, I prayed that the Father would keep you and would bring you back to a place of joy. And you, you've got to think if you're one of these guys, how could that ever happen? They really weren't even dialed into the resurrection. So it wasn't like they were hiding in a corner saying, well, in three days this will all change. They, they didn't really have an understanding of everything that was going on, and yet they could have held on to this word. Sometimes you can hold on to just a word from the scripture, right? But if it's the word God has given to you, hold on to it, hold tight. He will bring you back to a place of joy. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, darn, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Satan, the evil one, as head of the world system, seeks to do everything possible to destroy believers, but God's plan will prevail Christians must not take themselves out of the world, but remain in contact with it, trusting in God's protection while they witness for Jesus. For the first time ever, more people are leaving California than are coming to live here. I've been praying that the newcomers are missionaries. The plight of the state is a golden opportunity for the gospel. See what I did there? Golden State, State Golden. I thought that was pretty, pretty hot. I got up and had a coffee after I did that. But <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, I, I don't want to put a burden on anybody. I, we really don't. We don't put burdens on anybody. But, you know, uh, where, wherever you're going to move, if you're going to move, retire, whatever you're going to do, you, sir, you need to serve the Lord. You need to go to a place where you're serving the Lord. So, uh, and you know what? If I was a foreign missionary, all right. If I was coming from some other uh, country 
and I looked at a map of the United States, I'd say, you know, and read the news, I'd say, you know who needs the most help? California, because all of its leaders are crazy and that kind of thing, right? And so the missionaries would come to California and they try and get people saved because of the laws that are being passed and the weirdness and all that. And so um, be a California missionary. I wish they all could be California missionaries, right? <laughs> Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart for special use. A believer is sanctified, set apart for God the moment they are saved. Scholars call it positional sanctification. Your new position is that you're saved. Afterwards, we mature and we grow in our walk with Jesus. Those same scholars call this progressive sanctification, meaning we make incremental progress towards the goal of becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more holy. The indwelling God, the Holy Spirit, is primary in our progressive sanctification. His number one tool in our growth and maturity is the Bible. The Spirit teaches us the Word, guides us to the truth, uses the Word to give us a clear vision of Jesus, to inspire us with a deep desire to be like our Lord. We cooperate with the Spirit's work in our lives when we believe He enables us to do what it says in the Bible. Like Jesus, we learn obedience. Everything we need for life and godly living is found in the Bible. We can do it because we are empowered by the indwelling Spirit. And so our sanctification is obeying God as he is revealed to us in his word and his commandments in the power of the Holy Spirit which guarantees us that we can do it. Now John will go on in his epistles to say you can't do it perfectly. You, 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 know, you don't have to sin but you do sin and when you sin you need to confess it and all but uh, we keep making progress. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back but we're making progress. As you sent me into the world I also have set them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus sanctified himself means he voluntarily set himself apart in order to die on the cross, thus offering the world salvation by grace through faith. He would set them apart and send them into the world just like he was, only there'd be a lot more of them. There are a lot more Christians through the centuries than there was Jesus Christ, right? And so the Lord said, hey, it's a good thing that I'm leaving because when I'm gone and in heaven, I can send the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer everywhere on the planet. And uh, that's a lot better tool for evangelism. A Christian is someone who has been called out from the world by the gospel. Hopefully we realize that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're God's own special people, he says, that we might proclaim his praises. We are very special, and we say this without pride because we haven't earned it or deserved it. It is because Jesus said, mine are yours and yours are mine, and we are all together. Uh, you're very, very special to God, and uh, you need to know that and believe that and walk with him on that basis. Our hero didn't go out in a blaze of glory. He is a constant blaze of glory. And he's coming back in glory, Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse." 
And so that's the Lord coming back in glory. And that's us, by the way, on the horses, coming back from heaven with Jesus to the earth. Elsewhere, the Bible says he will be glorified in us at his coming. William MacDonald explains, amazed onlookers will gasp as they see what he has been able to do with such unpromising human beings. Uh, To see the transformed, glorified human being will be an amazing thing. John wrote this gospel, he said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you are not a believer, God the Holy Spirit is here to illuminate the gospel to you and to free your will in order that you might see your sin and call out for a Savior. And so for the people that are here this morning, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You've never been born again. Your life isn't lived for him in that sense. Uh, Come to Christ this morning. Somebody will be down here to pray with you. The more we get into this gospel, the more we see that believers need to believe that we have life in his name. Uh, A lot of the things that we've covered here, uh, we believe them, but we don't live them out as we should. In fact, I mean, that's a constant Christian complaint, right? Uh, I believe this, but I don't do it all the time. And so it's because we don't really believe that we can do the things God has told us to do. We believe for salvation, which is incredible. You don't know anything. You're a hell-doomed sinner. You couldn't be any dumber as far as religious and spiritual things, but you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You put all your trust in him. You're born again. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Changes take place in your life in a remarkable way. Then 20 years later, you're having a hard time with life, you know, because why? Because having begun in the Spirit, you're trying to make, be made perfect in the flesh. And so what John is saying is, hey, forget that and just stay in simple belief. You're a Christian. You've been saved. You're born again. The Spirit is in you. God has given you his word like never before. All you need to do is believe that his word is his enabling and walk with the Lord. Amen?